to us tonight. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our boys and girls may have sometimes a hard time understanding how somebody could have a party that lasts a little longer than a day or two. Although, I would imagine at the same time, you know, we, we find during the Christmas holiday season, I think when I was a child anyway, boys and girls uh, could keep an, can think about this a little bit, but I remember when I was a boy, when I was a little boy, then you know, we had Christmas celebration at home. That was pretty much it. That's because my, my uh, one set of grandparents lived in the Netherlands, and another set of my grandparents I never met because <coughs> they died during World War II. So we had a very simple celebration, but a lot of you boys and girls find yourselves going to uh, grandma and grandpa's and the other grandma and grandpa's, and then uh, maybe you have something with your own uh, family at home. And, and in that way, you know, Christmas has become a maybe a multi-day uh, or multi-party in one day kind of celebrating. Uh, but typically, we don't think of celebrations lasting that long. Although, again, in our in our own communities around here, a lot of the towns will have this just soon that they'll have these multi-day celebrations, you know, dune days or railroad days or whatever days there might be, and of course those are longer than just uh, one morning and one night. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we find if we have birthdays and that sort of thing, we'll invite our friends over or maybe even have somebody stay overnight, that kind of way. But there comes a time uh, for our friends to go home. Uh, Wedding receptions are but a few hours these days, and that's about enough for us, although we take great joy, I can say that personally, for those kind of wedding receptions. And yet there were festivals that would be held during the Old Testament times that would last a week, like the Feast of Unleavened Bread during Old Testament times. You know, we might talk about Thanksgiving weekend, or Fourth of July weekend, or I suppose when we go on vacation, we might call that a festival of sorts, because we might go for more than a few days. But, but to hold a festival for a week seems like uh, quite a bit of time. And yet Paul calls us to keep the festival in our text tonight. We're, we're not called to keep the Passover, Christ fulfilled that. But we're to live in the joy of what Christ has done as somebody who has fulfilled the atoning work to which each Passover lamb pointed. And, and that keeping of the festival in that way isn't a seven-day affair or even a month affair or a month-long affair. It's a lifelong affair. If the benefits of Christ's atoning work mean anything to us. And that's really, if you think about that, that's, that's really quite a blessing be able to look at life like that, to look at it as a lifelong celebration of what Christ has accomplished for us once for all. Paul tells us to keep the festival not with the old leaven of evil and malice, but with the unleavened bread of truth and sincerity. We'll take a closer look at what Paul meant by that tonight. First of all, we are to keep the festival, and I, and I admit that it, it, I'm looking more at this point. Uh, probably if I were to weigh it out, it's probably 70-30, something like that, uh, as far as looking at uh, the, the negative side as opposed to the positive side. It, it could be 50-50, but it just came out that way. So we're looking, first of all, then, more at the negative side here, that we are to keep the festival uh, not with the old leaven. Not with the old leaven. Life is meant to be a celebration 
of Christ's atoning work for us. But unfortunately, there are perversions of this ideal. You know, we talked about that a little bit this morning, didn't we, when we were talking about the Lord's Supper, that the Lord's Supper was meant to be for our encouragement and for us to be able to express thankfulness and, and to know comfort and security that way. And, and yet it's it easily perverted so that it, it, it turns on its head. And that's what happens with evil. It seeks to turn those good things that the Lord's given us into bad. And, and that's what happens here, too. For some, as Paul even notes in our passage, uh, life is nothing more than, than a, a gigantic party uh, that isn't curved and, and isn't directed in reverence or holiness and certainly not in consecration to God and what he's done. And, and he finds it shocking. Right In our passage, we see that right away. You know, he says, it's actually reported there's sexual immorality among you, and of the kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you're arrogant. And, and it just, it's shocking to me that this is how life is looked at. Like, uh, you know, Paul's not calling us to, to that kind of perversion. Paul is not calling us to, to a celebration when he's telling us to celebrate the festival. He's not calling us to take it on that abusive course. He's not telling us to, to look at uh, celebrating like a, an extended Mardi Gras, you know, a Fat Tuesday. You know, that kind of licentious behavior would be indicative for Paul of the old leaven. And that's why, you know, you look at the, the verse 8 that you do, you, that key word, therefore, right? This is the practical part of it, right? I've seen all this stuff happen. That's eh, not the way for God's people. It's not the way of God's holy people. Therefore, don't be like that. Don't act like that. that. That kind of licentious behavior would be indicative of the old leaven. And old leaven was symbolic of, of impurity in the Old Testament day. And people were called to sweep their homes clean of old leaven prior to the celebration of unleavened bread. Passover. I, I don't know if I, I can't remember who exactly I told this to, but I remember somebody that in, in my former congregation lived across the street on Frederick Avenue, I think it was. <laughs> I don't think they remember that, but in, in Munster, Indiana. And they would see when the time of uh, the Day of Atonement would come around, there were some Jewish people that lived in their community, and there was uh, one woman in particular, you could see her sweeping out her house at that time of the year just sweeping everything out of the house. Well, what was she doing? She was carrying out that, that old calling to sweep your home clean of old leaven. Uh, for the people of Corinth, the old leaven of impurity was another means by which arrogance was expressed. It wasn't particles on the floor. It was it was more of that arrogance that had been seen before, not just by now trying to be divisive, uh, not just by calling into question uh, you know, the rule of apostolic authority, but now because of their view of what they considered their spiritual liberty. It could easily be that their mentality was that uh, physical acts uh, were not viewed as spiritual issues at all. And all that mattered was the soul or, or the spirit or even matters so that even matters of incest were considered irrelevant. And that was shocking. 
Perhaps people considered their freedom in Christ to be absolute, a freedom to do whatever they wanted. That's the old leaven. Regardless, the arrogance of that, or the old leaven was of such a variety that Paul says that there are two things terribly regrettable, shockingly regrettable about them. He said one regret was that these people were proud of, of that of which they should have been ashamed. And then the second regret was that the shame was something that even unbelievers wouldn't consider doing. That's how shocking this was to the apostle. And he has to write about this. And those regrettable things didn't promote then, of course, a healthy distinction between church and, and the world. Far from it. That distinction, though, though never really perfectly done on the side of glory, needed to be promoted in the church of Jesus Christ. There had to be seen that there was something different about the church. <coughs> we might expect shameful things to be gloried in a world that doesn't fear God. We see that all the time. And the Lord will deal with that in due time. Uh, we realize that. But, but, but such, such shame is, is, is uncalled for and must be judged in the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, the Bible is, is, is clear to us that uh, you know that's something that you know let the, let the Lord worry about that. God judges those outside. But don't re don't forget that uh, there's another element involved in judgment, and He says, "Well, that shame is uncalled for. It has to be judged in the Church of Christ because, there, and the reason is because well, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is because there needs to be this difference." Distinction between world and church. Otherwise, why have the church? Church just becomes the world. Paul gives various reasons why that arrogance can't be tolerated. Now, one has to do with the fact that the church is supposed to be that holy entity. They're called and therefore consecrated to the Lord in Christ. In turn, they are to act as they are. If that's not the case, then the issue has to be addressed, and the leaven of impurity needs to be purged, he says. It needs to be purged also because a little leaven permeates the dough. If evil is, is tolerated, <coughs> particularly the evil of, of such extremes, uh, that can do nothing but have a corrupting influence on the body. And it, we'll, read, we'll say more about this later too, but, but that's, that's the interesting element, isn't it, about our lives. It's the kind of influence that we have. We, we sometimes think that we don't have an influence uh, on the world around us. So we don't have an influence on those who are in our close circle. But we, we do. We're, we're made that way. We're, and it can be to the bad or it can be to the good. And in this particular case, there's this corrupting influence that he says has to be removed. Bad company corrupts good character. And even, even though Paul isn't there... Physically, he says, I'm not going to wait until I get there to make a judgment about this matter. He only calls the church to follow suit with his judgment. Though I'm absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. And if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. And when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you're to deliver this man to faith. Uh, here, too, there would <clears throat> there'd be reason if, if, if people didn't follow suit here, there'd be reason, as he had said before, you know, to bring the whip, uh, as it were, if the arrogance of this matter would continue. That's what it is. 
Removing this leaven is, isn't just for the sake of the people in the church, but it's also, also for the benefit of the offending person. The pastor says, meant that the offender, the, the offender is handed over to Satan. Now, some have seen this as a physical deliverance that's, that's sometimes occurred with apostolic discipline. You know, like when you'd hear about, uh, or like Ananias and Sapphira, when they were physically affected because of their phoniness. But the nature of discipline is typically one of, of spiritual proportion. Being removed from the fellowship would be to be removed from the benefit that there's to be found in the communion of the saints. The fellowship of the believers, the body of Christ. And so the goal isn't just of, of protecting the fellowship, it is. But it's also to, the goal is to see proud hearts turned into soft hearts. You know, impenitent ones turn into penitent ones. Persistence in one's attitude of, of, as our passage would speak of, of malice and evil, and, and to be turned towards an understanding, recognition of the wrongs that they had been doing. And this is a passage at, at the same time that helps us to understand in our modern day you know, the importance and legitimacy of church membership. It's a subject that that uh, comes up all the time, you know, when it comes to the way in which the church uh, operates and as consistent or elders operate. You know, if, if you're going to remove somebody from the fellowship, if you're going to purge the evil person from among you, let him who does this be removed from among you. Well, how do you remove somebody if they weren't at one time incorporated in it? If you're going to remove somebody from your fellowship, there must also have been a process in which they were incorporated into the fellowship. You know, we did that this morning, didn't we? A couple of, of people with, with Blake and Maria. We, we welcomed them into their, our fellowship. We also heard Blake's profession of faith. They were incorporated into our fellowship. Now, many people in churches find that kind of process to be odd, to be irrelevant to be unimportant, to be secondary. Yeah, it, it's true that for some people, when, when they, let's say like when they move, they move their membership when, that, that, because that's important to them, and we're grateful for that. Uh, so before uh, they make their move of their membership, they, they do a, a good, thorough, thoughtful, informed process of deciding where they're going to go, and then they move it. They move their membership. But for some people, uh, moving one's membership is as important as rotating one's tire, you know, or, or teeth flossing. You know, they, they see some benefit, they might see some benefit in doing it, but, but you can get by without doing it, and it's, it's down on the, you know, on, on the pole of importance when it comes to what they're going to do in their life. And yet, and yet, official membership isn't something to be taken lightly. Not by churches, not by individuals. You can't be shepherded, and we all need to be shepherded. Scriptures are clear about that. We all need to be shepherded. But you can't be shepherded officially in a church if you're not officially a part of a church, because then you're just attending. But you're not part of it. Our passage presumes that you can't be excommunicated from a church unless you, first of all, were incorporated into a church. 
know. Some people, of course, like a like a loose or an unofficial unofficial membership. And you know, and, and again, they'll say, "Are you a member there?" No, I'm not a member there. I just go there. I'm just an attender there. Right? For some, if they go somewhere where nobody cares if they come or go, well, then that means that nobody's going to care about what they do. And, and, and that's how some people like it. They have, an, they have an attitude that says, you know, I like it when people don't care about me. Or where nobody's over me. I'm the master of my own ship, the captain of, of my own vessel. And, and that betrays arrogance again, doesn't it? And pride. It's an attitude that sees the church not as a friend, not as an asset, not as a blessing, because that's what it's intended to be, and, and that's what you know, church leadership is supposed to strive to be. Um, false, you know, sinful though we be, that's still, that's still the, the goal, is to be an asset, to be a blessing, to be, to be a counselor, to be friends. Uh, but oftentimes the church is looked at as an enemy, as a, as a liability, as a curse. The, the presumption is is first of all, they're out to get me. And so, some people's ideas is that, well, it, it, it's a place then, churches, where you, you just, you, you know, you get what you want and you leave the rest that you don't want. When we tend to, to look at the officers of the church as the enemy instead of as friends, who are only looking out for us spiritually, then we're misreading what the church should be for us, and we certainly are not doing ourselves any favors. We also do ourselves no favors by living lives of arrogance beyond the sexual arrogance that's mentioned here, uh, which is certainly an extreme example of it. Paul mentions greed and idolatry, reviling, drunkenness, swindling. He doesn't exhaust the list, of course. He could have gone on, but but enough to get his point across, right, about what the church should be. Uh, if we think we can have our spiritual cake and eat it too by belonging to the church and having a foot there, and then eat it too by, by having a foot in the world, then we have misread what the communion of the saints is all about. We read here about not... Even eating with people, it says here, who claim to be believers, but live like they're not. Now that's not meant to be an act of hatred, but it, it's pointing out to the, the idea that, that it's supposed to teach the brother that, that things have, have to change in their lives for them to really appreciate again the privilege of church communion. It, it isn't the communion that's to be taken lightly. That's, that's the element. It, it's not... This community of the saints, this communion of the saints, it's not, in essence, monopoly money, right? It's not something that's phony. It's not something that's trivial. It's real. It's valuable. It's precious. It's not cheap. Now, it's one thing, says the Apostle, if people are outside of the church and you have association with them, you have to leave the world not to be able to have contact with them. And hopefully in those contexts, there will be those who in time will come 
to appreciate the fellowship of the church and relationship with Christ. But, but the church's jurisdiction is not with the world. The church is not called to police the world. But the offender is in the church is a different story, says the apostle. The church is called to police herself. And, and of course, when people hear that, again, they, they get that sense that, you know, the church is somehow, uh, its leadership is, is out there to crack down. Well, there is a judgment that takes place. There is an assessment that takes place. A loving one. Yes, there's, a, there's excommunication, but, but it's meant to be restorative. It's meant to bring about penitence. But, but the apostle is, is trying to say, what, what he says here is that, you know, you continue to commune with the excommunicated. It really is an excommunication. Paul quotes the passage from Deuteronomy that was originally cited for the people of Israel. He says again, first the evil person from among you. It's interesting that the church of the New Testament has its continuity with the church of the Old Testament. It's a reminder again to us not to artificially separate the New Testament church of today from the Old Testament church of Israel. As if to say, well yes there are God's people in the church, but, but there are still God's people known as Israel. The church is Israel, Old Testament or New Testament, for the sake of Jesus Christ. And there's only one way to be known as God's people today, and that is through faith in the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. And to look at this any other way is, is only to our peril, only going to cause us problems, because we might think that we're God's people when we're not, because we haven't taken seriously the call uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. People look at this expulsion and, and excommunication as burning bridges with the, the, the discipline. Yeah, churches must be deliberate and careful in their carrying out of discipline, of course. Uh, it's not something that you proceed with, with a, you know, with a sporadic, with a, a, a shoot-from-the-hip mentality. Uh, I can speak for that for our elders, that they, they are very patient. I see that. I've seen that over the years with elders. They're not quick to want to proceed with steps of discipline. It's hard for them. Uh, they, they care deeply for these people. They want nothing more than to see these people respond in penitence and faith and, and to take on the zeal of being Christian. Uh, and after all, the goal is always restoration. And, and if you sat in on consistory meetings, you'd see that amongst the elders. Not just here, but in every place that I've been. But when those means have been exhausted, the truth of the matter is that it's the offender that's the bridge burn. The communion of the saints has been taken lightly by the discipline. And again, this is presuming that those who are in leadership are doing their due diligence. They're seeking to be just. They're seeking to be kind. They're seeking to be loving. They're seeking to follow procedure. So much so is is that true that uh, that the communion of the saints has been taken lightly by the discipline? So much so that he will not even change his corrupt ways that will have their effect on those in the communion. They don't care about that. They just want to be able to do what they want to do, and they don't care what kind of an effect that might have on, on young people who watch that or see that, or other people within the communion. That's not the important thing. And they don't appreciate their counsel. Of the, the council of the leadership. No, 
it's not a, there's no appreciation for the membership. There's no appreciation for the board of leadership. Paul, Paul calls for that isolation, not just for the sake of the discipline, but also for the sake of the church. The discipline takes a change of heart, uh, like the one in 1 Corinthians 5 seems to have done later in 2 Corinthians 4. That's a different story entirely. Because that's what's desired all along. Discipline is not to sit there and crack the whip. It's not meant to be sitting there and pounding people. It's, it's meant for a change of heart. A, a returning to the fellowship of believers. A purifying of the church communion. And most of all, the honoring of the Lord. That's, that's what desi the desire is. That's what the goal always is. You know, we all get asked when we're incorporated into the church, will we submit ourselves to the admonition and discipline of the church? And it seems easy to, to affirm. You've got to say, I did. But what will you do when you're admonished? What will we do when we're admonished? What will we do if we're disciplined? Will we submit to it? Will we see it for our good? Will we? Or will we seek to avoid it? Will we seek to rebel against it? Will we seek to run from it? If we do, then, then what we're doing is not in keeping with the festival, like the Apostle said. Let's keep the festival. Now, we've spoken mostly about the old love, uh, but the celebration of, of the feast, of course, is supposed to be a positive one as well. Purity, right? sincerity, truth are to mark the Christian celebrant, not phoniness. Right? Not trying to hide what we're doing, but sincerity, genuineness. Uh, this, this sincerity and truth is to be a sign of, uh, of keeping the festival in the sense of, of what we read in verse 8, that, uh, that we keep it with the unleavened bread of sincerity uh, and truth. One of, the, one of the greatest criticisms against church is hypocrisy and phoniness, right? No Christian can ever claim perfection on this side of glory, but it's our calling to be very careful, not just to talk a good faith, but to walk a good faith. If Christ has taken away our sin, then we, want to, we need to live like we believe it, right? Uh, it's not just uh, dressed up for Sunday, but it's living it throughout the day of every day. Forgive is forgiven. Love is those who are dearly loved. Be pure as you have been purified. Be holy as you are holy. Live a life worthy of the gospel. Take no delight in unrighteousness, in immorality or vengeance or greed or holding grudges or, or swindling, but, but take delight in God and His way. Considering that the Passover lamb that has been slain for your sin is at the background of all that you're doing. Love the truth that has set you free. Celebrate the feast throughout your life. Make your life a celebration of the Passover lamb slain for you. And then the godly influence that you can be to others. Because we oftentimes, right, we catch the idea that, yeah, you know, if people are corrupt, that's going to rot, rot the whole basket of fruit. We get that. But we must not lose sight of it either, that the godly influence that we can have by God's grace can have a profound effect 
on those around us, our children, our grandchildren, our friends, the neighbors around us, those who are part of the church of Jesus Christ. Don't underestimate the godly influence that you can have on others by what you're saying, by what you're doing, uh, by where you're going, by how you act in front of others. You might think that your influence is small or that you're weak. You know, who's going to listen to me? Never mind that. Celebrate the feast. Live in a godly way. And, and watch how God is going to use that kind of godly influence to be an impact to others around. Such celebration of the feast, of the festivals are calling in this passage. Whether it comes to removing the old, the malicious, the evil, or delighting in the unleavened life of Christian purity and sincerity and truth. In both of those ways, we're showing ourselves to be celebrating the atonement that we've known in the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, which is exactly what the gospel should do for us when we respond to it in faith. We will find it throughout our lives, keeping the festival, celebrating the atonement of Christ in our lives. Amen. Let's take a moment.